Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. listening to KSEF, a digital broadcast in Topeka, brought to you by 785 Magazine. Learn more at 785live.com. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, 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 and welcome back once again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 785 Live. Thank you, my girl, for introducing me to yet again another great episode. And today I'm really excited because today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite comedies of all time, Much Ado About Nothing by William Shakespeare. The year is 1599 or 1598, somewhere in that area, when this play was written, and it has delighted audiences ever since. So before I dive into that, first of all, if you're listening to me right now, the Lady Shakes have already done their premiere performance of their first all-female production of a Shakespeare hit. We just finished performing A Midsummer's Night Dream in Redbud Park in Noto, North Topeka's Arts District, just yesterday, Saturday, as you're listening to this. As I'm recording, we haven't done it yet. So I'm really excited that it's coming up, but as you're listening to this, it's already happened. I hope you had a chance to see these really wonderful, talented actors. All of these women did an amazing job. I'm looking forward to maybe more coming from Lady Shakes in the near future. So uh, let's keep our fingers crossed. Let's keep Shakespeare alive. I also wanted to talk about something that I read recently before I go too far into this, and that is this cancer culture about Shakespeare. There is some desire in some circles to reevaluate Shakespeare's work, and maybe there are some works or some language that is used that would not be appropriate to continue to perform. As I said when I was talking about The Merchant of Venice, there's, there's really harsh language about Jews in that. There's no doubt about it. If I were to direct that show, there's an awful lot of cutting I would do. But I cut in everything I do of Shakespeare. They're, they're just too long. What I really hope is if you're looking at Shakespeare, you are following my golden rule. And that golden rule is remember when it was written. It was written in a different time, different sensibilities. You have to keep that clear. Even though I think there is a desire to move Shakespeare to a pile where we don't visit anymore, I think overall that just won't happen. Shakespeare survived 400 years. I think he'll continue to survive, and I think he'll continue to be delighted by his works. So, that being said, let's talk a little bit about this play, Much Ado About Nothing. And I have to start by backtracking, which I really hate, something I said last week. Now, last week I was talking about As You Like It. We're not really certain what order these plays were done in. It's possible As You Like It came after Much Ado. It's possible Much Ado came after As You Like It. So we're not really certain. But I said last time that As You Like It was probably the introduction of Arnim, the new clown in Shakespeare's family. Not really certain when he took over for Will Kemp. 
but we do know Will, Will Kemp left before we, he finished the Henriad histories. Well, a very interesting thing was discovered when they were looking at the folio of Much Ado About Nothing, and that is, later in the fourth act, there's a line attributed to Dogberry, which is the clown role in Much Ado About Nothing, where instead of writing Dogberry, Shakespeare wrote Kemp, or someone did. Could have been from the papers of the uh, company manager put together for the production. Nevertheless, Kemp's name is obviously there. So Kemp obviously performed in Much Ado About Nothing. Did that happen before As You Like It? We don't know. But we do know that it's possible that Kemp himself actually stayed with the company longer than what I said last week, and that maybe it was even Kemp who was in As You Like It. So I had to backtrack a little bit. I hate doing that because I am ever so brilliant, but I probably did possibly push Arnhem onto the stage a little early. Nevertheless, we're talking about Much Ado About Nothing, and it is really a brilliant, sophisticated play. Yet in the play, you see pieces of Shakespeare's previous works. They're obviously related. From character names to character relationships, it's truly remarkable. And in Much Ado About Nothing, he introduces a very romantic couple by the name of Beatrice and Benedict. And for many years, the play Much Ado About Nothing was really called Beatrice and Benedict. What's unique about this is that not only were these really intelligent, thought-provoking, very funny characters who were madly in love with each other and tried to hide it, but also they were supposed to be the second-hand characters. It wasn't supposed to be their story, and yet they seemed to take it over. And even in modern day, it is Beatrice and Benedict our audiences look to watch and are delighted by the most. There's also a really unique element to Much Ado About Nothing in its title. Much Ado About Nothing has a very funny title. You can take it a lot of different ways, but basically, I'm going to go through the story of Much Ado About Nothing, and we're going to talk about how that title meant something different to the Elizabethan and Jacobean audiences than it does to us. So, first of all, let's hear some quotes. And to introduce our quotes, I always turn to my boy, Finn. Finn, what do you got to say? And now, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. Yes, a Shakespeare Quote of the Week. And there are some great ones in this one, even though a lot of them are not necessarily the big quotes that people seem to remember. However, I always like to point out those quotes that have a nugget of a phrase in there that we still use today, such as Beatrice in Act 2, Scene 1 says, As merry as a day is long. As a day is long is a very common expression to us today. There's another quote from Don Pedro, Act 2, Scene 1, Speak low if you speak of love. Very romantic. Benedict, who swears he will never marry in Act 2, Scene 3, says... When I said I would die a bachelor, I did not think I should live till I were married. Hero in Act 3, Scene 1 says some cupids kill with arrows, some with traps. Benedict, who is a soldier and believes in honor in Act 5, Scene 1 says, In a false quarrel, there is no true valor. But I think the most impressive line is this one. Benedict says in Act 3, Scene 2, Everyone can master a grief, but he that has it. Why oh, isn't that true? It's, it's easy to say people need to get over things, get past whatever is bringing you down. But when you don't feel it yourself, it's so much easier to be a master of that grief. But he that has it is having a real struggle. Keep that in mind. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Much Ado About Nothing. Okay, I'm going to try and give you the synopsis of Much Ado About Nothing a little faster this time so we can talk more about the play on the other side. First of all, the play takes place in Messina, which is a city 
in Italy. We are at the home of Leonardo, who is a very wealthy man who lives with his daughter Hero and her cousin and companion, the Lady Beatrice. Leonardo is very wealthy, he has a very large manor house, and he's very good friends with the ruler of this region, Duke Don Pedro. And a war has been going on that has just recently ended, leaving Don Pedro still in charge of his country. He has put down a revolution against him that was led largely by his brother, Don John. Well, news has arrived that Don Pedro is returning from the war and plans to visit Leonardo and bring a few soldiers with him. Among them is a young soldier by the name of Claudio, who has a history with Hero. He is madly in love with her and everybody believes that certainly his arrival will lead to a marriage. Also coming back with him will be Benedict, who's a confirmed bachelor. He has some history with Beatrice himself, a past dalliance, a past romantic fling, whatever it might happen to be, and Beatrice pretends to be very cold to the idea of Benedict returning. They're also going to bring with them their prisoner, Don John, the brother of Don Pedro, who led this insurrection against his own brother who will face trial, but first they're going to have a nice little party. So they all go to Leonardo's house. Now that night during Act 2, Leonardo holds a mass ball to celebrate the end of the war. Now while at the ball, the engagement of Claudio and Hero is arranged, and everybody's extremely happy. Everybody that is, except of course, Don John, who wants to spoil the general happiness because he lost the war, and he wants to make sure that he can somehow destroy happiness among Don Pedro's friends. So, Don John plots with two soldiers, Baraccio and Conrad, and he deceives Claudio into believing that Hero is cheating on him, and convinces Don Pedro and Claudio to meet him and hide in the darkness, for they'll see tonight when a visitor arrives at her window. Well, in Act 3, that night, Hero's maid, Margaret, talks to Baraccio through the window, dressed as Hero. Claudio and the Duke watch secretly from the distance, and they believe that the girl is indeed Hero and she allows Baraccio into her bedroom window. This immediately upsets Claudio. Meanwhile, Hero, Claudius, and Don Pedro decide that Benedict and Beatrice are the ideal partners. They need to be together despite all their bickering, so they decide to try a plot to bring them together. The men will make sure Benedict overhears them talking about how much Beatrice loves him while the women will make sure that Beatrice overhears a conversation about how much Benedict loves her. The plan, of course, works perfectly, and the two of them meet and fall madly in love with each other. What's really kind of interesting here is that gossip is a main theme in this play, and gossip I'm going to touch on after I finish this synopsis, but one of the things about the gossip is that it was a dangerous period for people to gossip in Elizabethan England, gossiping about somebody being a closet Catholic gossiping about somebody hiding money or taxable income. All of these things got people arrested and got people sometimes killed. So gossip was a very dangerous thing in Shakespeare's time. Anyway, moving on to the rest of this scenario. Next we have Act 4. Now keep in mind Claudio, who is certain that his intended is cheating on him, goes through with the wedding. It's Hero's wedding in Act 4 and this is where the play gets rather dark. Claudio, still thinking that Hero has cheated on him, meets her at the altar, and just as he's about to take his vows, he denounces her, publicly shames her, calls her a wanton, destroys her in front of her family and her friends, and leaves her, and she passes out, apparently dead, from the shock. With the help of a priest, Leonardo, Beatrice, and Benedict are able to get her inside, where they were able to revive her, but everybody who attended believes Hero herself has died of shame. Beatrice and Benedict decide this is a great idea, they know that Hero is innocent, and they need to clear her name, so they decide to let it be known that she is indeed dead. Claudio, of course, has absolutely no guilt about it. He feels like she cheated on him, and she got what was coming to her. 
Later, we introduce the great Dogberry. What a great clown role Dogberry was. He was a constable, charge of a night watch. Now these night watch are really a ridiculous ragtag group of people. He's got a, a best friend who helps him on it. His name is Virgis. Virgis is an old man who really shouldn't be a policeman anymore. And Dogberry is very determined to bring justice to this world. But he's stuck with this ragtag band that just kind of falls around on the stage. We had a great time with our watch. And this is a great opportunity for directors to take roles that are essentially silent and have no speaking roles. Yet those watchmen can be the most recognizable, remembered, and enjoyed characters in the play. Directors need to use the comic potential introduced by Dogberry and his associates. Anyway... Dogberry overhears Baraccio and Conrad bragging about the trick they had played on Claudio and Don Pedro, and they arrest them. They take them in, and they try to interrogate them. The interrogation scene is hilarious, because obviously, they don't know what they're doing. But the two villains immediately turn on Don John, fearing prison, and spill the beans about the entire plot. Now in Act 5, Dogberry's incriminating information, after a great deal of difficulty trying to get it out, is given to Leonardo and Don Pedro. They confront Claudio and tell him everything that he saw was a lie and what he did to Hero causing her death is a crime. They force Claudio to agree he will accept Leonardo's niece in place of the dead Hero. He must marry her sight unseen and promise to live the rest of his life and care for her. Of course, the niece turns out to be Hero, conveniently in disguise. They bring her out, they have a wedding, and it's a very painful moment for Claudio, but he promises to atone for his sins and make the life of this young woman before him as wonderful as he could have done, devoted to the memory of his dear sweet hero. Well, of course, she pulls back the veil and she is revealed, of course, to be hero. Then, Benedict and Beatrice announce they too will share that wedding day and they also are married. Don John, meanwhile, has been captured trying to escape and is left for a future trial when the play ends in a merry dance. Don John just disappears from the play. There's not even a scene written with him being c captured or confronted. Anyway, that's the story of Much Ado About Nothing. We're going to talk a little bit about Much Ado on the other side after this break. You're listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 785 Live. Thank you all for tuning in, and we'll see you in a few moments. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75 Live. Hey, thank you all for tuning in. If you want to talk to me, I'd love to talk to you. Want to ask me a question? Send me an email at shannon at shannonjriley.com. Riley is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. I'd love to hear from anyone. What do you think about the show? Do you have any suggestions for future shows? Or a question that you'd like to ask about Shannon Shakespeare Sunday? Right now, I'm going through each one of the plays every Sunday, and there's several that I've already done. So if you'd like to catch any past episode of Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, they're archived right here at KSEF, as well as on my webpage, shannonjriley.com. So go and check them out. And while you're at shannonjriley.com, 
check out any of my plays, short films, or anything else that might be there. I'd love more and more people to do my plays, so I'd love you to go to that site. So that's ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y. And leave me a, a thought or two while you're there. I would love to hear from you. Now, you're right in the heat of Shakespeare's most prolific period, writing some of his greatest works. Much Ado About Nothing is certainly one of those. It's a great comedy. However, there's a bit of interesting things about Much Ado About Nothing that I want to touch on first. First of all, Much Ado About Nothing is a great title, but it is also a double-meaning, even triple-meaning title, and we've lost some of that meaning 400 years later. It could have also been called There's Something About Noting, or N-O-T-I-N-G, although the Elizabethans still pronounced N-O-T-I-N-G as nothing. But noting N-O-T-I-N-G meant to gossip, rumor, or overhearing. Noting was a terrible thing that people would do, and Shakespeare uses it to bring Beatrice and Benedict together, but he also uses it to destroy Claudio and Hero's relationship. It's a unique ability that Shakespeare has that I've talked about before of playing both sides of the coin. He can really bring about how it could be funny to be involved in this gossip and how dangerous and deadly it is. And that's a trick of this play. You need to thread it carefully, directors. It can't get too dark. When Hero passes out and everybody thinks she has died, it cannot be played too heavy, but it also cannot be dismissed. It's very important that this idea of Hero's death is implanted on everybody. Even Leonardo later has to defend his daughter's honor and claim that she is dead to Claudio and attack him for what he has done. So you have to thread this needle softly and carefully. But I also said Much Ado About Nothing had a triple meaning, and that is the word nothing. Sometimes Elizabethans broke that apart and called it nothing. And nothing was a slang term for vagina. Nothing meant there was nothing there. This would have been a triple entendre type of title for Elizabethans because it is the virtue of the woman that is always in question in these plays. Not the man. We don't care how many people Claudio might have slept with. We care that Hero was a virgin on that wedding day and seeing a man crawl through her window dispels that idea. So it was much more concerned about the woman, her nothing, that was driving the plot of this play. So it's a very clever title and a very interesting way of introducing the intrigue and action of the play the way Shakespeare does. Now, he had quite a few sources for this. And Shakespeare's time, there were a lot of romantic comedies, and a lot of them dealt with the virtue or lack of virtue of the woman involved. 16th century stories of lovers who were deceived into believing each other were falsely accused or rightly accused of infidelity were all over the place. Shakespeare could have taken it from an Italian novella that talked about multiple stories where men were deceived by their women and also where men were wrong and wrongly condemned the women of being less than virtuous. He also could have taken it from a French group of stories from Charles of Anjou, which also dealt with the misconceived notion that a woman has been improper or lacking virtue when it's actually her servant who was impersonating her on a balcony scene. This scene is almost directly lifted and used for Margaret in Much Ado About Nothing. 
There is even a very close version of Claudio and Hero Plot told by Edmund Spencer in The Fairy Queen. And all of these would have been available to Shakespeare at that time to lift this piece, lift that piece, put it together, and make the all-new and very unique story of Much Ado About Nothing. As I said, it was probably done for many, many years and many different places before it got published. There are printed texts that talk about a play by the name of Much Ado About Nothing that was performed sundry times. It was publicly acted prior to 1600. Again, we don't really know when the play was written, though we probably figure it was debuted around the autumn or winter of 1598. The earliest recorded performance of the show was at court in the winter of 1612 to 1613, where there were festivities leading to the marriage of Princess Elizabeth and Frederick Palatine. The play was published in court of form in 1600. This was the only publishing before its addition into the first folio in 1623. TCT did this play back in 2016. We had a wonderful cast. You know, whenever I've done Shakespeare at TCT, I have been blessed by being inundated with some of the finest actors Northeast Kansas has. There are a lot of people who really enjoy sinking into the works of William Shakespeare with me, and I've always been honored to have them. My Beatrice and Benedict were Megan Bishop and Denny Lastly. They were absolutely stellar, as was my Claudio, which was Matt Bryden, and my hero, which was Cat Keys. It was really a remarkable cast top to bottom. Dogberry was Ted Shanka, Virgis was Bruce Smith, and some of the funniest silent people I've ever had the pleasure of working with were the Night Watchmen. One of them, even, we called Sandwich. All he had to do was walk around watching the action eating a sandwich. Sounds boring. Was absolutely hilarious. There's a very unique element, though, of Much Ado About Nothing in the gender roles. You know, Beatrice and Benedict were not meant to be the main interest in the play. There's a remarkable story about King Charles II, who, in his copy of the second folio, had written beside the title of the play, Benedict and Beatrice. <laughs> so popular were these secondary characters that they overshadowed even the title itself. They're very funny together, and also very sweet. When you find two actors who can play that I hate you, I love you kind of pull, push and pull you kind of moment, you've really got a great show. And this is really heightened by Benedict, who is very witty and very sharp, but Shakespeare gives the best lines to Beatrice. Beatrice always remains more powerful in the game of wits than Benedict. He even says, she jabs at me with poignards that stab at me. He can't keep up with her, but they are madly in love with each other, and you know that they are going to get together in the end. The sad part of the story is Claudio and Hero. Claudio is duped, and it's very easy to make him a villain in this play. Certainly he acts villainous after he finds out that Hero died after his denouncement of her at her wedding, but he seems to show no remorse for it whatsoever. That seems villainous. But at the same time, he is incredibly virtuous at the end when he knows he did wrong and he will dedicate his life to this strange young woman in honor of Hero, the woman who he has wronged. So there's a great virtue to Claudio as well. There are other big themes in the play. Infidelity comes up many, many times in Shakespeare's later works. We're about to come to one of them by the title of Othello, where infidelity is the driving force. Several characters are just obsessed with the idea that the man has to know that the woman has been faithful, that he knows she is virtuous when she comes to him. 
Don John plays upon this medieval idea that a man must have a virgin on his wedding night. Don John drives home Claudio's pride and fear of cuckoldry to the point where he does what he does. And we never see Don John pay for it. He gets away. There's a line at the end of the play where he gets arrested and he will be tried, but we'll talk about that later. It seems to be just a plot line that Shakespeare throws out there for a moment and then abandons. There's also a little bit of an abandoned line in that at one point Claudio is very afraid of wooing Hero. He thinks he doesn't have the tongue for it, so he sends someone else to woo for him. And it's believed that, well, that person uses their advantage to try and woo Hero for themselves. But that plotline is quickly dropped too after Act 2. Shakespeare seems intent on staying focused on Claudio and Hero, who actually have just as much stage time, what Claudio certainly does, as Beatrice and Benedict. A lot of audiences don't see it that way simply because it's cut differently. I myself cut scenes to make it the play fit within a two-hour time frame and really focused in on the relationship of Beatrice and Benedict. We happen to move our play from Italy to Spain, and I set it at the end of the Spanish Civil War. I wanted it to be a place where a war has just ended, there's great joy that it is ending, but it was a war between families, a war between brothers. I did not want to use the American Civil War for that, because there's a racial issue in there. I just didn't want to be a component in the play. Finding the Spanish Civil War seemed to be the perfect place to do it, and it allowed me to play some really cool Spanish music of the period too. So, it's a great play. But there is something very interesting that is also introduced in the play. Balthazar, a minor character, sings a song called Sigh No More. Sigh No More has become one of Shakespeare's most recognized and beloved song. So at the end of this speech, I'm going to sign off with Sigh No More. So you get to hear that music. But before I do that, I want to encourage you to watch Much Ado About Nothing. There's some great film versions out there. Uh, Several years ago, Kenneth Branagh did one with Emma Thompson. It's pretty good. I I rather liked it. So please, go and check out Much Ado About Nothing. It's a very funny play. It's a very romantic play. And it's well worth your time. I'm Shannon Riley, and you've been listening to Shannon Shakespeare Shunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio. Next week, we're going to dive into a history that is not a history as we look at another play from this very prolific period, William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. I want to thank you all for tuning in, and I'm going to close out now with a musical number, Sigh No More, written by William Shakespeare. Enjoy. We'll see you next week, and remember, keep it barred to the bone. Sigh no more, sigh no more, sigh no more, ladies, sigh no more. Men were deceivers ever, one fool didn't see, and one Converting all your 
sons of war into hell on on 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 no more sing no more sing no more deities sing no more of doubts so dull and heavy the fraud of men was ever so since summer first was leaving then sigh not so but let them go And bonny, and bonny, and bonny, and be you blind and bonny, converting all your sons of woe into pain on on 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 pain converting all your sons of woe. Into hell, no, 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 no,